ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we pray together. Read the scripture. Let's pray together first. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. And as we consider these things uh, of the of your passion, Lord Jesus, of the, the accusations that were made against you, of the, the shameful um, treatment and blasphemies that were hurled upon you. Lord, we marvel, Lord, that in your sovereign power, Lord, you responded with meekness and humility. You entrusted yourself to the just judge. Lord Jesus, we know that we are guilty. Um, Lord, that we are guilty of, of, of doing the same types of things that these men did against you, at least the same species of sin that they committed. And Lord, that we are all guilty before you and that you would be just to punish us with eternal hellfire. Yet, Lord Jesus, you have poured out your love and mercy upon us by dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, you know all of our guilt, past, present, and future, far more than we even understand it ourselves. And yet, Lord, through the gospel, we are declared to be innocent. Lord, I pray as we look through these passages um, this, this morning, I pray that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, impress these truths upon our hearts. Lord, that you might, um, that you might cause us to see Jesus for who he is. He is, and to embrace him more closely as our Lord and Savior. Do this, I pray, for your glory and for the building of your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses uh, 63 to 71. So we're finishing out Luke, Luke 22 this morning. Luke 22, 63. Now the men who are holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it who struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts through the power of his Spirit. Please be seated. We live in a culture that is increasingly divided. Most recently, we have seen this in the, the, in the range of opinions of the general population as to the government response to COVID. People line up on both sides of the issue and, and the, the division that is present is being exploited by politicians on both sides for political gain. But the biggest issue in the news right now has a high degree of consensus. The vast majority of people that you talk to are unified as to the, their opposition of what is taking place in Ukraine. The world is watching as, as Russian forces continue their offensive 
against this country. People naturally recoil at the injustice of the invasion of a sovereign nation. We were all horrified this past week as a Russian airstrike badly damaged a maternity hospital, killing 17 people, sorry, injuring 17 people and killing three, including a child. Our hearts break over the two million refugees fleeing to neighboring countries. It's only a, a fraction of the, the 44 million in the population of Ukraine who is still in harm's way. As we prayed earlier, there's, there's 1.4 million refugees in Poland who risk death from freezing temperatures and shortages of food and water. And we all respond with moral outrage as many of these people are being, these refugees are being taken advantage of by mafia profiteering. So we are unified largely as a population in our judgment of what is taking place. There is a natural revulsion over these things because God has created us with a sense of right and wrong. Human beings are moral creatures, in a sense, because God is a moral God. Even after the fall, we're able to tell right from wrong because God's law is written upon our hearts. But that corruption that is there in our hearts sometimes causes us to be confused and, and sometimes causes us to, to misunderstand and to, to misjudge right and wrong. There's a corruption in the human heart that, that without the regenerative, regenerative power of the Holy Spirit will always cause us to misjudge. And in this, there is far more unity. In this one area of misjudgment, there is far more unity than any other judgment that people commit. Apart from a very small percentage of the population, people are united in their judgment of Jesus. Or in reality, their misjudgment of Jesus. Talk to 10 unbelievers and you will get 10 wrong opinions as to who Jesus is. Here are just a few that you may have heard in your efforts of evangelism. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was one in a series of, of wise teachers throughout history. Jesus was not a real person. Jesus was a, a myth created to represent moral teaching. Jesus was deluded. Jesus was insane. You've probably heard many of these things from people, from unbelievers you've tried to share the gospel with. You can see that there are a range of opinions as to who Jesus is, but they're all wrong judgments. In fact, even the best ones on this list, that Jesus was a good man and a, a wise teacher, aren't really different from the worst ones saying that he was deluded and that he was insane. They're all a gross misjudgment of who Jesus is, and all believers are, unbelievers rather, are unified in this because they're naturally opposed to Jesus. Because in their hearts, they hate Jesus. An acceptance of who Jesus said he is and what he said he came to do would require a complete reordering of one's life. A complete rejection of living for self and sin and a submission to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Submitting to him as Lord. 
people refuse to come to the light because they love their deeds of darkness. They refuse to recognize who Jesus is because they hate him and everything that he stands for. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now this misjudgment of who Jesus is really reaches its culmination in the events before us in this passage. No event in history is more unjust than the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In the passage before us, wicked men presume to sit in judgment of Jesus Christ, accusing him of blasphemy even as they blaspheme him. Calling this kangaroo court a, a miscarriage of justice would be a massive understatement. They had already rendered the verdict and the sentence even before he was in their custody. The verdict, excuse me, the verdict is guilty. And the sentence is death. There are three phases in this part of Jesus on trial while he's in custody of the Jews. <clears throat> in verses 63 to 65, we see the mockery. In verses 66 to 69, we see the interrogation. And then in verses 70 and 71, we see the verdict. It's early Friday morning, the Friday that we call good. This is actually the second phase of the trial of Jesus. Luke does not relay the first phase, but, but pulling together the, the events as described in the other gospel accounts, Jesus has first been questioned by Annas and Caiaphas. So Jesus was inside the house of the high priest being beaten and interrogated while Peter was outside in the courtyard denying him. Then, as we see in today's passage, once day broke, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin for a formal trial. This was because under Jew Jewish law, a trial for an offense that carried the death penalty could not be conducted at night. And so these men were trying to legitimate the, the trial so that they could, they, they, they could repeat and confirm the verdict. But in their rush to condemn and to kill Jesus, they broke convention because a verdict of condemnation to death was supposed to wait until the day after the trial. So they were guilty of breaking their own law but they were in reality guilty of a whole lot more. Once again, as we saw last week, Jesus is, is now mainly the recipient of the action. As, as throughout Luke's gospel account, Jesus has been the one that's been, been doing the teaching and, and doing the miracles and, 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 and ministering to people and loving people and serving people and, and, and taking the lead. But again, now he's presented as the recipient of much of the action. His person is demonstrated mainly through what others inflict upon him and say to him. But as we see, the enemies of Jesus are actually bearing testimony, even in the rebellion, as to who he really is. When Jesus does choose to speak, what he says is explosive. But for the most part, he appears to be the the passive participant in his own trial and sentencing. 
But through this apparent passiveness, we see that Jesus is in complete control of the circumstances. So verses 63 to 65, the mockery. Jesus was in custody of the officers of the temple awaiting formal interrogation by the Sanhedrin. And as these men held Jesus in custody, they mocked him and they beat him. Now Jesus is going to be mocked and beaten again by Herod's soldiers and Roman's soldiers before, Roman soldiers before he's crucified. But, but here the temple guard blindfolded him and then told him to, it was rather than they struck him, and they told him to prophesy who struck him. They're adding insult to injury. They're essentially calling Jesus a false prophet. And now Jesus is going to be indicted as a false prophet three times before Pilate in our next chapter. But Jesus has proven, has just proven yet again, that he is not just a prophet, but he is the archetypal prophet. As he prophesies Peter's betrayal in very specific detail. And now he proves that he's the archetypal prophet in, in an even more profound way. Earlier prophets who went before Jesus, prophets like Jeremiah and, and Elijah, suffered greatly. But their suffering pointed to this suffering. And Jesus suffers to a much, much greater degree. Jesus has spoken about the rejected prophets throughout Luke, all the way back to the beginning of his ministry, back in Luke chapter 4.24. We said, he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then, and then after, after expounding on the, the passage of Scripture he was teaching from Isaiah 61 and 2, they, they, the people tried to throw him from the top of a hill. Jesus declared in Luke 13, 33 and 34, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to it. Jesus had, had just told the, the parable of the, of the vineyard owner's son. It's prophetic and speaking about the vineyard owner's son being beaten and killed and thrown out of the vineyard in Luke 20, 10 and 11. And so now these men with the reprehensible treatment of Jesus are actually fulfilling that prophecy that Jesus made about himself. Just stop and think about what is taking place here. These men may have deluded themselves into thinking that Jesus was deluded, but they were assaulting and insulting God incarnate. They were assaulting and insulting God incarnate. God incarnate was being assaulted by his own creation. If a man attacks a mere dog, he's liable to censure, possibly a fine. If a man attacks another man, he's liable to prison. If a man attacks a political ruler, he will go to prison for a very long time. But what happens to men who attack God himself? These men are misjudging Jesus, but they themselves will be judged by His holy justice. And those who do not repent will be under His just wrath. 
but not yet. Not yet. Jesus shows who he really is in his response to these attacks. Jesus did not pour out his wrath on them, his omnipotent wrath. He would have been perfectly justified in doing so in in obliterating these men and sending them into suffering. But does that mean that Jesus was passive here? Quite the opposite. It means that Jesus is consciously allowing these men to do this to him because he knows that their shameful and sinful treatment of him will advance the kingdom of God because Jesus wants to obey God's will. As I said in the introduction, God created us to be opposed to injustice. But where we go wrong is often in our response to injustice. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to to get sinfully angry at injustice, especially injustice that is perpetrated against me. If I think I'm being treated unfairly, my, my fleshy response is to push back. Maybe you can relate. But that's not what Jesus does. Externally, at least, he does nothing. He quietly allows them to attack him and to insult him. Jesus committed himself to him who judges justly. Like a lamb before the shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And this he is our example. Luke says in verse 65 that they said many more things against Jesus, blaspheming him. Their misjudgment of Jesus caused them to blaspheme him. Blasphemy can can refer simply to to disrespect and to slander, but in, in this context, this is the utmost form of blasphemy. These officers are disrespecting and slandering the very name and character of God. This is an absolute shattering of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And and this is an exposure of the heart of unregenerate man in his sinful nature. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. And so we look at this and and we we say it's horrific and and we say what what these men did is wicked and it is. But it isn't just these men who blaspheme Jesus. These aren't the only men who have shattered the third commandment. You and I have shattered the third commandment as well. Breaking the third commandment isn't just using the name of God as a bad word, as as bad as that is. You're taking the name of the Lord and God in vain. You're blaspheming the name of God whenever you have prayed distracted prayers. Whenever you've sung hymns, like maybe even this morning, you've you've sung hymns with your lips, but but not with your heart. And it's even more than that. Whenever you act in a way that dishonors God, whenever you sin, you're blaspheming Jesus. 
Because, brothers and sisters, you and I bear his name. But it's even more than that. Whenever you have done anything that is not expressly for the glory of God, you are committing blasphemy against Jesus. You are committing the same species of sin as these men. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So these officers of the temple blasphemed Jesus because they misjudged Jesus and we do the same thing. But the misjudgment and blasphemy of Jesus continues in our passage as Jesus now is interrogated by the Sanhedrin, the, the religious ruling council. Verses 66 to 69, the interrogation. The Mishnah, the, the man-made Jewish law, forbade the conducting of trials for capital cases at night. So at the break of day, the assembly of the elders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes, gathered together for a formal trial of Jesus. It was a sham. It was a sham. They had already tried Jesus before the high priest during the night, as the other gospel writers attest. Furthermore, they were rushing to convict and condemn Jesus this morning instead of waiting to the next day, as I mentioned earlier, as their own law required. So here, they, they can't even keep their own law, let alone God's law. And here they are presuming to judge the Son of God. They ask Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. Remember, Christ isn't Jesus' surname. It's his title. Christos is the, the Greek word for the anointed one. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. These, these men are asking if Jesus, claim, if Jesus is the, the, the prophet and priest and king sent by God as promised throughout the Old Testament. But they're not really asking if he is. They're asking if he claims to be the Messiah. They didn't believe for one second that Jesus is the Messiah. But claiming to be the Messiah does, does not warrant the death penalty. These men are, are looking for, for an excuse. They're looking for a way to have Jesus killed. And they find it in the Romans. You see, under the, the Roman occupation, they did not have authority to put anyone to death. But the Romans happily put people to death. And so from, from their perspective, if, if they can prove that Jesus says he's the Messiah, then they can say that he is, is a king or claims to be a king setting himself up in opposition to Caesar. And the Romans would then convict him as an insurrectionist and crucify him. So here we see these, these, these men who are enemies Right, the Sanhedrin and the Romans, enemies of Jesus, united in their misjudgment of Jesus. We'll say the same thing next week with Herod. In fact, we'll see that, that Herod and Pilate actually become friends. They become unified in their misjudgment of Jesus. So this Jewish ruling council has figured out that, hey, if we can get the Romans against Jesus, 
and the Romans will kill him for us. Consider the irony. In requesting whether Jesus is actually the Christ in order to condemn him, or claims to be the Christ in order to condemn him, they're actually confirming who he really is. They should be falling before Jesus in worship and submission. Throughout Luke, we, we've seen his emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And Luke wrote this gospel account, remember, to demonstrate to Theophilus the truth about who Jesus is. And now, the religious authorities are inadvertently confirming who Jesus is and what he came to do. Again, they had already been through this. They'd been over this the night before. The high priest had demanded, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 20, 63, and 64. And Mark 14, 62 includes a direct answer from Jesus to the question, are you the Christ? He says, I am. So now when they ask Jesus the question again, he replies, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So this time, Jesus is not submitting to their demands. He knows that they've made up their mind about him. He knows that they have rejected him. He knows that they have their hearts set on killing him. He knows that if he asks them, if he asks them who he is, they're not going to answer. Remember Luke chapter 20, when, when they asked Jesus about the, the source of his authority, he answered them by asking them about the source of John the Baptist's authority. Right? And they wouldn't answer him, so he didn't answer them. And he won't answer them this time either. But now Jesus continues. And he says a whole lot more than they had bargained for. Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, this is a, a turning po point is taking place with Jesus as always at the center. Jesus has said something very similar in Luke 21, 27. He says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus is declaring that he is God. But the council has no idea who they're dealing with here. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. This is a, a title from the, the vision of Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7 read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So here, Jesus is answering the question that they had never answered back in Luke 20, verses 40 and 41. Let's flip back a couple of pages to Luke chapter 20. 40 and 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, they didn't answer that time either. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? They couldn't answer that question. And so now Jesus is providing the answer. 
This is from Psalm 110, 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. From now on, Jesus, the Son of Man, will be seated at the Father's side. It's a position of ultimate authority. Their dishonor will lead to Jesus receiving the highest honor in all of creation. It's also a position of supreme judgment at the end of time. Jesus sitting on the throne is is a picture of the judgment seat. The council presumes to sit in judgment of Jesus Christ, but he is their judge. They saw Good Friday as the day of judgment for Jesus, but on judgment day, Jesus will judge them. But his reply ends up being the cause of his own conviction when they bring him before Pilate in Luke 23. So now let's look at verses 70 and 71, the verdict. The men of the Sanhedrin had all that they needed to send Jesus to the Romans for execution. But with this latest declaration from Jesus, a bomb has been dropped at their feet. And so now they also presume to render a verdict of blasphemy upon Jesus. Verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Now remember, Jesus has just referred to himself as the Son of Man, and now they ask him whether he is the Son of God. They recognize that Jesus is making a unique claim for himself, an exaltation to the seat on the throne beside God himself. It's a claim far beyond anything that they thought the Messiah would occupy. So claiming to be the Messiah would be bad enough in their minds, but they saw this as blasphemy. They saw Jesus as exalting himself to the level of God himself. And they were right. Jesus was exalting himself to the level of God himself. Jesus is God. And they know what he's saying. Notice the definite article, not Are you a son of God, but are you the son of God? This echoes the satanic temptation of Luke 4, 3, and 9. If you are the son of God, then do this. This is their hour and the power of darkness. Jesus says simply, you say that I am. Very similar to what he's already said to Annas and Caiaphas. As, Mark, as Matthew records for us. Essentially, Jesus is saying here, you said it, not me, but I'm not denying it. Again, consider the irony. These men were unwittingly affirming who Jesus is and what he came to do while vehemently denying it in their hearts. Nonetheless, they were still providing testimony, again, of what Luke said to prove to Theophilus. That Jesus is the Son of God. They didn't and couldn't really understand, but Jesus knew the full meaning of his heavenly power and authority. The sinful hearts were set against the truth. Jesus' words drove them deeper into their denial. 
We'll see next week, Lord willing, Jesus will answer Pilate similarly as well. The men of the Sanhedrin were now utterly enraged. They replied, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from our, for ourselves with our own lips. So they are judging Jesus as guilty of blasphemy, not for his claim again to be the Messiah, but for his claim to sit at God's right hand. Again, in their mind, Jesus is declaring that he's equal to God and will judge him. And in this, they are exactly correct. Jesus is claiming to be equal to God and is declaring that he will judge them. They get what he's saying. The leadership understands these implications. The defendant claims to be the judge of all the earth, including them. In their minds, Jesus is condemning himself with his words. There's a doubt in their minds that he is guilty of blasphemy and deserves death. And so now they're going to drag him before the Romans for execution. We need to realize what is really happening here. Jesus knows the full implications of what he's saying as well. He is choosing his words specifically so that they will send him to the cross. Jesus has prophesied that these very men would reject him in Luke 9.22 and 17.25. And now they seek to do so in the most extreme manner possible. Their lack of belief is presented by them as evidence of his guilt, but it's actually evidence of theirs. But again, it isn't just these men. These men were not the only ones who misjudged Jesus and denied him. Right? We, we heard Peter's threefold denial last week. How many times have you denied Jesus this past week? Are you willing to testify as to who Jesus is? And not just with your words, but from your heart. Are you willing to testify as to who Jesus is with your actions? Are you willing to stand up and be different by seeking to walk as Jesus walked, even in the face of misjudgment and mistreatment? Are you willing to stand up against the wickedness of this world, not in the flesh, but by the Spirit, through the Word of God, the proclamation of the Gospel, and prayer? Are you willing to stand against your own wickedness, affirming Jesus by denying yourself? The religious leaders thought they were doing God's will in destroying Jesus because they saw him in opposition to God's will. But the irony is they were actually fulfilling God's will by destroying Jesus. They were fulfilling God's will even though not at all how they intended. Their instrumentality in the crucifixion of Christ serves God's plan. But one day, the one who they judged will sit in judgment of all who reject him. One day, the words of these men will be presented as evidence against them and will be part of the trial, part of the conviction that sends them into eternal hellfire, apart from those who repented. And we see in the, in the testimony of, of Scripture in Acts that it's very possible that in fact, I'm certain of it, that some of these men actually eventually repented. 
is sitting in this room. You and I have also blasphemed Jesus and denied Jesus. But sitting in this room, I trust that the majority of us have turned to him in repentance and faith. The innocent one was declared guilty by wicked men. And the innocent one will be declared guilty for wicked men and women. Jesus Christ will be declared guilty not just by the Sanhedrin, not just by Herod, not just by Pilate, but by God himself. But this will not be the miscarriage of justice, it will be the fulfillment of justice as Jesus goes to the cross bearing your guilt and mine and bears the punishment that you and I deserve. As the Father declares him guilty so that he can declare us righteous. Like these men, you and I are guilty of misjudging Jesus. We also have blasphemed and denied Jesus. We still do it every day. Every day we fall short of the full obedience and the full worship of who Jesus is. Every day we deny Jesus in our thoughts and our words and our actions. And your and hope, your only hope, and mine is to turn to the one who we have blasphemed and denied to find forgiveness in his name. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? The one who became sin so that you and I can be the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we marvel at the wonders of the gospel. Lord, that through the instrumentality of wicked men fulfilling their wicked schemes, they fulfilled your holy and righteous plan to send your Son to die for sinners to bear the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be credited with the righteousness of Christ, pronounced righteous and welcomed into eternal life. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see these things and to rejoice in these things and to preach these truths to ourselves daily. so that by your grace, through the power of your spirit and the proclamation of the gospel, we will walk in the newness of life. We will walk in a way that, that increasingly honors the name of the Lord Jesus and proclaims the name of the Lord Jesus so that Christ might be glorified in us and through us for the advance of your kingdom. We pray it in his matchless name. Amen.